0: Chapter 7 part 1 of the ghost camp this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the ghost camp by rolf balderwood chapter 7 at that moment the last i ever expected to see on earth the black girl uttered a sudden cry the report of a gun was heard as a bullet passed between me and brady flattening itself against the rock where i had been leaning just before at the same time, four men dashed across the gully and made for him. He looked at me with devilish malignity for a moment, but, I suppose, wanting the charge in his gun for his own defence, turned and fled with extraordinary speed towards the forest. The police, for such they were, with a soldier and the informer firing at him as he went. Their guns were the old-fashioned tower muskets. They were bad shots at best, so the girl and he disappeared in the thick wood, unhurt as far as I could see, I fell on my face, I know, and thank God, before I rose, the God of our fathers, who had answered my prayer and delivered me out of the hands of the bloody and deceitful man, in the words of the psalmist. I took my sheep home early and put them in the paling yard, dog-proof it was, and needed to be in that part of the country. Just as it was getting dark, the men came back, regularly knocked up, with their clothes torn to rags and half off their backs. They hadn't caught Brady. I didn't expect they would he was in hard condition and could run like a kangaroo he got clean out of sight of them in a mile or two after they left us what astonished me was that they brought back the black girl with a bullet through her shoulder poor thing i suppose that was a mistake said i you didn't fire at the poor thing surely we didn't said the soldier but who do you think did you don't say said i but i do it was that infernal villain and coward brady himself that shot her she couldn't keep up with him, and for fear she'd fall into our hands and give away his plans, he fired at her, and nearly stopped her tongue forever. But he's overdid it this time. She's red-hot again him now, and swears she'll go with any party to help track him up. Serves the brute right. Let's have a look at the poor thing's shoulder. I wonder if the bullet's still in it. We washed off the blood, and between us managed to get it out. It was wonderful how many people in those days knew something about gunshot wounds. After we'd churned Mary the bullet, we bounded up, and the poor gin thanked us, and lay down on her furs by the fire, quite comfortable. We kept watch and watch, you may be sure, for fear Brady might come in the night and shoot one of us. But nothing happened, and after breakfast the party went back to Hobart, taking the girl with them. I was in fear for weeks afterward that he might come and pay me out, but he didn't do that either. He was taken not long after, and when he was, it was through the same girl, Mary, whom he tried to shoot. He met his fate through his own base bloodthirsty act, and if anyone brought it on his own head and deserved it thoroughly, Mick Brady was that man. Now this happened many years ago, before you were born, or thought of, as the saying is. Often and often, when I could leave the flock safe, did I try to find out the place where this stone came from, but I never could drop on it again. When I found it first and saw that there was a regular load, and plenty more slugs as rich as this, which is nearly pure silver, mind you, I was in such a hurry to get back to the sheep that I'd only time to mark two or three trees and drive in a stake before I started for home. I was sure I could find it again, but I never did. It was hot weather, and a bushfire started that day and burned for weeks, sweeping all that side of the country. You'll remember reading of Black Thursday, Master Charles. It burned all Port Phillip. Victoria, as they call it now, from Melbourne town to the Ottawa range. So I expect my marks were burnt out, for I never could find the way to it again. What with the fallen timber that covered over the ground, and the ashes that were heaped up a foot deep in some places, the whole face of the country was altered past knowing. You might have heard tell that ashes fell on board some of the coasting craft miles from the shore, and a black cloud hung over the coastline for days afterwards. But take my word for it, Master Charles, the word of a dying man, for I'm not long for this world, that whoever finds the gully where this stone came from and takes up a prospecting claim will own the richest silver mine south of the line. Your father's always been a good master to his prisoner servants. That Mick Brady told a lie when he said he wasn't. And there's none of em that wouldn't do him a good turn if they could. And I have known you and loved you ever since you was the height of a walking stick. So here's the silver slug. "'and the wash-leather bag of specimens. "'There's gold and copper besides, "'and I hope there'll be luck with them.' "'The poor old chap didn't live long after that. "'He was comfortable enough for the last year or two of his life, "'for my father pensioned his old servants, "'and his old horses too, for that matter. "'He couldn't bear to think that "'after they'd worked well all their lives, "'they should be allowed to drag out a wretched existence, "'starved or perhaps ill-treated, "'till death came to their relief. "'So the silver slug was bequeathed to me.' This is a bit of it on my watch-chain, with the malachite colouring showing out. It always comes with time, they say. Anyhow, it brought me luck in the end, though it was a precious long time coming about. As you've brought us so far, said Jack Clark, and Mr. Blount seems interested. He hasn't been asleep more than twice. I think it would be a fair thing to give us the last chapter, for I suppose you did find the old man's marked tree, and if so, how, as lawyers say. As you have deduced with your usual astuteness that I must have found it, or we shouldn't be here, I suppose I may lay aside my modesty and enlighten the company. The Comstock has a well-marked track now, if there's nothing else good about it. Old Parkins gave me the bearings of the lost gully, as he always called it. Once a year I always took a loaf round the locality after Christmas, poking about doing a little fishing when there was any, shooting wallaby or anything worthwhile that I came across got an old man kangaroo bailed up at the head of a gully one day after a big fight with my dogs. I had fired away my cartridges and was looking around for a stick to hit him on the head with, when I backed on to a stump of an upright sapling, as I thought, out of a whipstick scrub which had grown up since the fire. It did not give way as I expected, and putting back my hand to feel it, I found it was a stake. It was charred all round, but still sound, and hard to the core. Lucky for me it was stringy bark timber. I pulled it up and tried it on the old man's skull, which it cracked like an eggshell. It had been pointed with a tomahawk and driven well into the ground. That clinched the matter. It was the old man's peg. The next thing was to clear the ground round about of timber and ashes, with all the accumulation of years. This I did next day, carefully, and it was not long before I discovered a couple of tomahawk marks on a big messmate not far off. The bark had partly grown over it, it was in the form of a cross. Underneath the new bark, the marking was perfect, as I had often seen surveyor's marks, years and years after they had been done. Then I came upon the cap of the load, broke off some rock, 50% ore, no mistake, blazed my track and cleared for Hobart, took up a prospector's claim next morning at 10am, registered in due form, met Clark and, accidentally, Messrs Blount and treganwell newer, that is to say newly arrived from England, and the great silver property, known to the world as the Tasmanian Comstock Limited, and so on, was duly launched. Well done, Charlie, my boy. No idea you'd so much poetry in your composition. You were not regarded as imaginative at the old Hutchins Institute, where we both had small Latin and less Greek hammered into us. But you were a sticker. I will say that for you. Now that I'm hors de combat, I seem to see that quality in a new light. Main strength and stupidity we used to call it in your case. "'I've no doubt you were horribly ill-mannered, even without a sprained ankle,' retorted Herbert. "'But we make allowances for your condition as an invalid. "'By the time we get that corduroy track finished, and traffic other than manpower restored, "'we shall look for improvement.' "'The next day, being bright with sunshine, dispersed some of the gloom which wet, cold, and unwanted fatigue had imposed upon the partners. "'The shafts of sunlight flashing through the endless glades and thickets of the primeval forest,' formed a thousand glittering coruscations of all imaginable forms and figures. The pools of water reflected the glimpses of cloudless sky, framed in sombre but still burnished shades of green. Birds called and twittered in approval of the change, while strings of waterfowl winging their way to the great mountain lakes told of a happier climb and the undisturbed enjoyment in which the tribes of the air might revel. The obvious primary duty after breakfast was to get to the mine itself. The distance was not great, but the task was less easy than might be supposed. The track through the jungle of scrub and forest was necessarily narrow, as the labour necessary for clearing it was great and therefore expensive. The tremendous rainfall had turned the adjoining country into a quagmire, the only means of crossing, which was by a corduroy road. On this inconvenient makeshift the friends stumbled along until they came to a collection of huts and tents, the usual outcrop of a mining township which springs up mushroom-like, at the faintest indication of proved payable gold, silver or copper in any part of Australia. Of course there was a store, so-called, from which proudly flaunted a large calico flag, with Comstock emporium rudely painted thereon. With a few picks and shovels, iron pots and frying pans, with a half-empty case of American axes outside the canvas store, denoted the presence of the primary weapons used in the war with nature. A score or more of shafts, above which were the rude windlasses with rope and bucket of the period, disclosed the beginning of mining enterprise, advertising the hope and expectation of a subterranean treasure house. The hope invariable, the expectation, alas, so often doomed to barren disappointment and eventual despair. However, when the prospector's claim was reached, within the area of which no intrusion was allowed, The dull grey rock from which Mr. Blount was urged to break down a few fragments disclosed a perfect Aladdin's cave of the precious metal. His enthusiasm, slow to rouse, became keen, stimulated by this potentiality of boundless wealth. His more emotional partner was loudly enthusiastic upon the immense value of the discovery. "'See that stone?' he said, knocking off a corner of the face. "'It's all fifty percent stuff, when it's not seventy-five. Look at the native silver, and the malachite.' I've been on the Comstock and the Indian chief in Denver, and can make affidavit that in their best days they never turned out better stone than that. Most of it was less than half the percentage, indeed. The ore bodies were larger, you say? No such thing. This load widens out. The deeper you go, the more there is of it. Easy work, too. Freight? Expensive? Wait till the corduroys finished to the main road. We'll have stores and hotels, the electric light, hot and cold water laid on, a couple of clubs with the last month's magazines, and the Times itself on the smoking-room table. You don't know how everything comes to a big field, gold, silver, or copper. As soon as the precious metal is proved, proved, mind you, to have a settled abode there. Fortune? There's a fortune apiece for every proprietor here today, even for Clark, who's now in his bunk reading a yellowback novel. All this fairy-appearing relation turned out to be a sober and accurate statement of fact, as far as could be gathered from the survey made by the partners in the Enterprise. The stone, which was of surpassing richness, was principally found in a well-defined load, forty feet wide, increasing in volume as the shafts pierced more deeply into the bowels of the earth. A mining expert of imminence turned up, who had, after many perils and disasters, found his way to Comstock, on being permitted a private view, he confirmed mr Tregonwell's wildest flights of fancy nothing in the southern hemisphere as rich or half as rich has ever been discovered he said he doubted as did Tregonwell, whether in all the mines from peru to denver such a deposit had ever been unearthed he proved by reference to scientific geological treatises that it was so rare as to have been doubted as a possibility that such a find could occur But if so, the most apocryphal yield of Peru and Chile would have paled before the size and richness of this silverado of the wilderness, so long hidden from the gaze of man. Then an adjournment was made to the emporium, as it was proudly styled, the meagerness of its materials and adornments being in the inverse proportion to its imposing designation. But the glory of the future, the assured development of the mind, and, as a natural sequence, of the field, was shed around with irradiating effect and brilliancy of colour. Upon this the proprietor proceeded to dilate, after an invitation to a calico-shielded sanctum, sacred to the account books and documents of the establishment. In the centre of the compartment stood a table composed of the top of a packing case, placed upon stakes driven into the earthen floor. On one side was a stretcher with his blankets and bedclothes, surmounted by a gaily-coloured rug, upon which the visitors were invited to sit, while the host, after placing a bottle of whisky of a fashionable brand upon the festive board, cordially requested his guests to join him in drinking the health of the energetic and spirited proprietors of the great Comstock silver mine. Not that it looks much now, gentlemen. No more does this stringy bark in calico shanty of mine. But that says nothing. I was at Ballarat in the fifties, And Jack Garth, the baker, had just such a gunnier as this. I brought up a load of flour for him, and was paid a £150 a tonne for the carriage. The roads were bad, certainly. Puts me in mind of this hole in that way, but you could travel somehow. And look at Ballarat now, with trams and town halls and artificial lakes and public gardens and statues, just like the old country. And Jack Garth, well, he's worth a couple of hundred thousand pounds if he's worth a penny, owns farms and prize stock, and hotels, and everything a man can want in this world. How came that gentleman? Because he was a hard-working, straight-going chap? No, though he'd always have made a good living. Any man of the right sort can do that in Australia. But the gold was there. It was there then, and it's there now. It floated the whole place up to fortune and fame, the diggers, the storekeepers, the publicans, the commissioners, the carriers. The very police made money. Some of them saved it, too. Didn't one of em own a whole terrace of houses afterwards? Well, the gold was there, and the silver's here. That's all that's wanted for miners to know, and they'll follow it up. If it was to the South Pole, and mark my words, gentlemen, this place'll go ahead and grow and flourish, and make fortunes for us men standing here, and for the, err uh, uh, babe unborn. Concluding his peroration with this effective forecast, which showed that his connection as member with the Bungaree Shire Council had not been without effect on his elocution, mr morgan replenished his glass and invited his distinguished guest to do likewise hobart at length mr blount was unaffectedly pleased even joyous when for the second time he sighted the towering summit and forest-clothed sides of mount wellington overlooking the picturesque city the noble stretches of the derwent and the southern main impatient of delay and feverishly anxious to receive the letters which he had not cared to trust to the irregular post service of silverado almost certain as he deemed of answers to his letters from mrs bruce and imogen even if the master of the house had not relented he had stayed a day to ensure the company of the mining expert the road being lonely the weather bad and the conversation of a cultured companion valuable under the circumstances Mr. Blount ran rapidly through the pile of letters and papers which he found awaiting him, indeed made a second examination of these former missives. A feeling of intense disappointment overcame him when no letters with the postmark of the village on the upper Sturt turned up, nor did he discover the delicate yet free and legible handwriting which conveyed such solace to his soul at Bunjil. Looking over the correspondence mechanically, however, he came across the postmark of that comparatively obscure townlet, and recalling the bold, characteristic hand of Sheila Maguire, tore it open. It ran as follows. Dear Mr. Blount, You told me when you went away that cold morning that if anything happened here that I thought you ought to know, I was to write and tell you. We all thought there would be a heavy fall of rain, and most likely a big storm that night. I expect you just missed it. But there must have been a water spout, or something, for the little river, and all the creeks at the head of the water, came down a banker, It knocked the sluicing Company's works about above a bit, and flooded the miners' huts. But the worst thing it did was to drown poor Johnny Doyle, the mailman. Yes, poor chap, it wasn't known for days afterwards, when the people at Marinder wondered why they didn't get their mail. He was never known to be late before. However, drowned he was quite simple too. He could swim first rate, but the pack horse was caught in a snag, and he must have jumped in to loose the bags and got kicked in the head and stunned so the packer was drowned, and him too, worse luck. His riding horse was found lower down. He'd swum out all right. They fished up the pack saddle with the mail bags, but the letters were squashed up to pulp. Couldn't be delivered. So if you wrote to anyone down the river, she didn't get it. I thought it was as well to let you know, as you might be waiting for an answer and not getting one go off to foreign parts in a despairing state of mind. Bunjil's much the same as when you left, except that little river jack, the two O'Harras, "'and Lanky Dixon were arrested in Gippsland. "'But not being evidence enough, the PM here turned them up. "'A report came that you had struck it rich in Tasmania, "'so you may be sure of getting all your letters now and some over. "'I've noticed that. "'So long. "'I send a newspaper with the account in it of the flood. "'Believe me always, your sincere friend and well-wisher, Sheila Maguire. "'P.S. "'The Cob goes first-rate with me. "'I'm learning him to jump. "'He's christened Bunjil.' I'm going to live in Tummet after Christmas, and he will remind me of the time you came here first. "'By Jove! Shiloh, you're a Trump!' was Mr. Blount's very natural exclamation, as he arose and walked up and down the room after mastering the contents of the momentous epistle. "'This clears up the mystery of their silence. No wonder they didn't write. Bruce thinking that I was willing to let judgment go by default.' Mrs. Bruce and Imogen believing heaven knows what, that I must be a shady character at any rate, no gentleman, or I would have answered one or the other of their letters, sent in the goodness of their hearts. So this is the explanation. The temporary relief accorded to the recipient of Sheila's letter encouraged him to hunt through the pile of newspapers for the unassuming Bunjil Little River and Boggy Creek Herald, which, presently describing, he fastened upon the headlines, disastrous flood, great destruction of property, lamentable death by drowning, We regret deeply to be compelled to chronicle the melancholy and fatal accident by which Mr. John Doyle, a valued employee of the Postal Department, lost his life last week. The mail from the township to the Tallawatta Post Office, by no means inconsiderable or unimportant, is carried on horseback, though we have repeatedly pointed out its inadequacy as a mode of transport. Our remonstrance has unfortunately been emphasised by the drowning of the mail carrier and the total loss of the letters and papers. Mr. Doyle was a fine young man, of steady habits, a good horseman, and expert swimmer. It is surmised that in attempting to free the pack-horse, since discovered entangled in a sunken tree root, he was kicked by the struggling animal, and stunned. The post-mortem examination before the inquest made by Dr. Dawson, M.D., who came over from Beechworth for the purpose, disclosed a deep cut to the temple in the mark of a horseshoe, The coroner, with a jury of six, brought in a verdict of accidental death by drowning. At the funeral, nearly a hundred persons attended, showing the respect in which the deceased was held by the neighbours. Father O'Flynn of the Presbytery at Hovell conducted the service. This occurrence has cast quite a gloom over our township and the surrounding district. So much for poor Johnny Doyle, a game, active, hard-working son of the soil. Sober and well-conducted, the chief support of his widowed mother, with a brood of half a dozen young children. There was some argument after the funeral upon the mystery of permitted evil, and the dispensation which allowed the sacrifice of poor Johnny, whose life was a benefit in his humble sphere to all connected with him, while as to certain worthless members of the body politic freely referred to by name, the invariable verdict upon an apparently charmed life was you couldn't kill him with an axe. Though temporarily immersed in thought, Mr. Blount quickly came to a conclusion that, as his former letters had been prevented by fate from achieving their purpose, it would be the obvious course to write to the same persons at once, furnishing the same explanation. He devoted the evening to that duty solely, and after conveying to Mr. Bruce his regrets for the unavoidable delay which had occurred, and lamenting the injurious construction which might be put upon his silence, made an appeal to his sense of honour that he should be granted a hearing, and be permitted to explain, personally, the apparent inconsistency of his conduct. To Mrs. Bruce, he wrote with more freedom of expression, deploring the unkind fate which had denied him an opportunity of clearing away their aspersions on his character. As to his non-appearance, he had been called away by business of the greatest urgency, affecting not only his own, but other people's interests. His future prospects had been deeply involved, Nothing short of prompt action could have saved the situation. Now he was rejoiced to be able to assure her and Miss Imogen that a fortune of no inconsiderable amount was actually within his grasp. He forwarded a copy of the Hobart Intelligencer, a respectable journal, in which she would find a confirmation of his statement, also a detailed account of the rise and progress of the property, though more rose-coloured than he would care to assert. The value of the property, a mining expert of imminence had said, could hardly be overestimated. It was his intention, without more delay than the consolidation of the directorate and other essential arrangements required, to return to New South Wales and present himself before them at Marinder. No matter what the outcome might be, the result, he felt, would colour his future existence for happiness or misery, yet he was determined to undergo the ordeal. A final decision, however disastrous, would be more endurable than the condition of doubt and uncertainty under which he had existed for the last few weeks, accompanying these letters was a packet containing letters of introduction to the governors of more than one colony they were from personages of high standing even of great political influence not couched in the formal phraseology which the writers of such communications hold to be sufficient for the purpose they spoke of the bearer as a young man of great promise who had unusual opportunities of rising in the diplomatic or other official branches of the civil service but had somewhat inconsiderately preferred to explore new and untried roads fortune the writers had no doubt but that he would distinguish himself in some form or other before his novitiate was ended a short but impassioned appeal had been enclosed in this letter to mrs bruce her womanly compassion would he trusted impel her to deliver it to imogen whose sympathetic feelings if not a warmer emotion which he hardly dared to classify he felt instinctively to be in his favour having completed his task he was not satisfied until he had posted the letters and packet with his own hands and with an unuttered prayer that they would meet with no mischance similar to the last he returned to the tasmanian club where he slept soundly till aroused by the fully arisen sun and the hum of labour combined with the ceaseless clatter of vehicles a man's mental turmoils and uncertainties doubtless act upon his physical constitution, but he must indeed be exceptionally framed, who can withstand the cheering influence of a well-cooked breakfast and a fine day in spring. The surroundings of a first-class Australian club are such as to cause the most fastidious arrival from Europe to recognise the social kinship of the cultured Britain to be worldwide and homogeneous. The conventional quietude of manner, the perfection of attendance, the friendliness towards the stranger guests, all these minor matters, differentiated from the best hotel life, tend to placate the traveller, much as he may be given to criticise all more or less foreign institutions when distant from the mecca of his race. So it came to pass that on forth issuing from that most agreeable caravanserai, his bruised and lacerated spirit felt soothed by the courtesy of the members generally, as well as of those immediately near to him at the table where he sat. He had drifted easily into conversation with several manifestly representative men, with one indeed an all-powerful mining investor as he learnt subsequently holding the fortunes of a mammoth copper syndicate in the hollow of his hand of this gentleman he took special heed but neither from his appearance manner nor conversation was he enabled to make a probable guess as to the nature of his occupation he might have been an habitué of cities or a lifelong dweller in the country interested in commerce in finance pastoral or agricultural pursuits in any case in any one of these or in all but there was nothing to indicate it. A complete negation of the first-person singular marked his conversation, yet he was apparently equally at ease in each and every topic as they arose. One thing, however, could not be mistaken, the massive frame and exceptional capacity for leadership, which would seem to be wasted on a city life. Another of a widely different type had been his right-hand neighbour at the genial but conventional board, a young and fashionably dressed man, native and to the manner born, who seemed to be the recognised arbiter elegantiarum, as well as leader and referee of all sport and pastime, secretary to the Polo Club, steward at the forthcoming race meeting and Hunt Club Cup, on the committee of the Assembly Ball. Also imminent, he tendered to offer to our honorary members to procure seats, tickets and introductions for himself and friends with special facilities for joining or witnessing these annual celebrations. He also was not offici to any known profession, At least to none that could be gathered from looks or manner. Others of the ordinary denizens of Clubland to whom he was introduced mentioned his partner, Mr. Tregonwell, as an out and out good fellow, and as a mining expert, a benefactor to this island. He had evidently toned down his exuberance in the interests of conventionality mister Blount, in contradistinction to the men who had extended the right hand of friendship to him, was patently a novus homo, ticketed as such by dress and deportment, and assured of courteous entertainment from that very circumstance. End of chapter seven, part one.